Welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs, the podcast where we talk with entrepreneurs and business people from all walks of life and from all around the world in the hope that something you hear will leave your business a little richer. We brought together some great insights from our phenomenal guests. Their experiences and stories are pure gold. We hope you're enjoying this season. Here are some highlights. In episode 45, medical director Dr. Aisha Peets Talbot talks us through a doctor's take on burnout. We were talking earlier about burnout. How do you know if it's hormonal or you're just doing too much? So when you talk about burnout, there is a true term. We call it like a functional medicine doctor will likely, if somebody starts to say, oh, I'm burnt out. And that's what I really do see in my entrepreneurs, my type A's, my go-getters. They're trying to do like multitask and do a bunch of things. Then it is the burnout. That burnout medically is called adrenal fatigue syndrome. And what that means is the adrenal glands that are usually giving us all the adrenaline, the go, 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 go. They start to be like tweet out and they cannot do the go, go, go anymore. And that's the, the thing about your adrenal glands is they are the master gland that controls all the rest of the glands. So your adrenals conclude, control your thyroid, control your sex hormones. And so, yes, it's all tied. So burnout and hormone imbalance is all the same thing. And you can get it all tested and see. But yes, if you're stressed, guess what? Your body doesn't want to make the rest of the other hormones. It's now in survival mode. And it's like, who needs those hormones when I'm really trying to survive? So you don't get those reproductive hormones that make us feel so great. And even the thyroid will suffer. And then your metabolism says done. And then all of a sudden you're putting on weight and you're tired. So yeah, oh, it's just compounding the issues like one right on top of the other. And is it true? It all starts with stress. It all starts with stress. So that's it. So that's what we test. We test cortisol levels and cortisol is the stress hormone. And so that's what we see is we see high levels of cortisone level. And so it's it's all about leveling it out and really controlling those cortisol levels and get them in a healthy range. And it's not sometimes stress that you think of. So it is stress like, oh, I'm worried about this. I'm hoping to get this done. But it's also other things that stress the body. So there's different types of stress. Things that stress your body would be, I have to go back, get back surgery. And now your body's got to heal and repair from that. I am being deficient in vitamin D for years. I'm stressed, like your body's going to be stressed when it doesn't have the building blocks. Um, and you can have chemical stresses, being exposed, walking into a moldy building every day, breathing in mold, or, you know, having sushi every day for lunch. And then it's, you're getting mercury toxicity from your tuna. It's all these little things that add up that really stress the body and all you're thinking about is the stress from maybe I got to make this trying to make this revenue or whatever you know if it's a business thing so it's so much more so yeah we we look for it all and sometimes when you know what is cool about looking for it all is that some of the other things are easier to fix than some of this mindset on worrying and stressing but I was like okay if you're gonna worry and stress let's make sure that you're not toxic you got lots of nutrients so we're um kind of fueling and maintaining the body and then you know you can still kind of do what you want to do in episode 46 Zenix diamonds and five-star google reviews customer experience expert Carl Schwantes talks about being exceptional 
So for anyone who doesn't understand what a Google review is or how one gets one, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah. So Google reviews, Google is the predominant platform by far. It's like, it's something like 95% of all searches online are done on Google. And Google right at this point in time can't, well, that we know of, uh, is not listening to everything that we're saying, although they probably are. And um, in order for Google to understand how to tailor the algorithm to help us find what we want, they need users like you and I to give Google the data. And the way that we do that is in the form of a Google review. Well, one of the ways that we do that is in the form of a Google review. It's me saying, I'm like a little ant and I've just bumped into this restaurant over here and I said, it's great. You should try the steaks uh, and the cocktails. So all of those things are keywords that Google's looking out for. So when someone types into best steaks Brisbane, the fact that I've written that in the reviews pushes that listing up the rankings. So it, the Google reviews accounts for about 16% of your local search engine optimization, which basically just means eyeballs. It's Google's eyeballs on your business, on your website, uh, which means more bookings and inquiries coming through to you. And 36% of your local SEO is from your Google business profile. Here's the funny thing. Google created this amazing tool in Google reviews and Google business profile, uh, but they expect you to Google how to use it. So I guess for me, what, what I'm on a mission to do is to help, you know, 100 business owners generate over 100 Google reviews for their business. Uh, because I know that once you hit that 100 review milestone, uh, people start to naturally organically generate new clients without spending any money on ads. And I, I get messages all the time. I love it. You know, people saying to me, you know, we got X number of dollars from our Google review clients or um I actually have my phone linked to their Google profile. So I get pinged every time they get a five-star Google review and I get excited like it's my own, but it's not, it's my clients, but uh, but it's just seeing these things just kind of ding, ding, ding come through. And it's just, it's so transformative to a business to know that your clients, you're winning new clients from your old clients. It, it's just, you're getting people that are coming in because uh, they found you through the Google reviews and they've read your reviews. Average person reads between five and seven Google reviews. And you have to have a reputation score above four, anything below four and people unlikely to use you. A single one-star review can cause two out of 10 people to not use you. And 62% of people actively look at people's profiles to find the one-star reviews because they want to see what the worst case scenario is if they deal with you. So, People want buyer safety. And it's, and it's true essence, that's what it is. I, I want to know that if I come to you, that you're going to look after me, that you're going to do a great job. If there is an issue, you're going to support me and help me, not just tell me to kind of get stuffed kind of thing, you know? So there are so many aspects of that. And there's so much research out there about the value and the benefit of reviews. And it, it's just amazing that at this point in time, there's still so many people not touching it. And so the bar to being exceptional on Google is still very low. So it's not too late to start going out there and focusing on building your Google portfolio. I sometimes say, it's like, imagine if I said to you, Laura, I'm going to give you a digital marketing assistant for your business. Um, they're going to work 24 seven, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. Um, you never have to pay them a wage, uh, no taxes, no superannuation. They'll never take a sick day or holidays and they're going to get better every single year. Would you like a digital marketing assistant like that? Of course. Yeah. 
That's, that's what your Google reviews will do for you if you adopt this strategy. In episode 47, tour company founder Denise Carnahan explains how she is driven by a passion. I think to anybody who will spend five minutes talking with you, that your business is very much led by your passion. Tell us, how do you do it? It's passion and passion drives. And I am very driven by my passion for Africa. My husband and I have a primary school over there that we established back in 2014. So we're very passionate about school and um, our children at the school and the staff. We have a lot of friends in particular in Kenya now. It's, it's our second home. And I I just love to talk about it. And I just want to show everybody how my Africa, that's what I call it, my Africa. How did you get connected to Africa? Where did that begin? I had realised and seen the desperation for education in a developing you know, country like Kenya where schooling is just key and there just isn't enough schools. And so we had been given some money from friends and things to spend, donate here and donate there. So we pulled it all together and we built a little school. And it cost us about $3,000, New Zealand dollars. And we had the school up and running in two months, found a plot of land with our friend Ayub's help because we wanted him to run the school. And this is the naive part is that we thought, well, we'll build the school for, say, 50 children, and then we can, that can be our contribution to helping the underprivileged, and it cost us about $150 a month to run the school with two teachers and very basic, very extremely basic in a very poor slum area um, in Nairobi. So we built the school, and on opening day, there were 117 kids at 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, so we quickly realised that the school was blowing out from our 50, you know, that we'd planned in our mind and that these kids could not, you know, they couldn't work, fun uh, function properly um, in, this, in these cramped conditions. So we were heading off to Uganda to do some backpacking. And before we left Kenya, I said to you that when we got back to New Zealand, we'd do some fundraising and send it over to build another lot of classrooms. So that's exactly what we did. And we built another three classrooms. So now we had the new three classrooms and two classrooms from the original building. I went back to Kenya to see how it was all going um, six months later, and we had 300 kids. Oh, wow. Denise, there's something about what you're doing that makes this possible. Do you have any ideas, like the top three things that you'd recommend to someone who want to follow their passion into a business? You just have to do it. You have to believe in yourself. You have to remove any barrier because we are actually very capable of doing whatever we want to do. It's our mindset that stops us from doing things. I could easily have not done any of it. In terms of the school, who in their right mind would have just created a school? We had never had that on our... And tourism, as I said to you earlier, was never on my radar. I didn't know the first thing about it, but I learnt. And I followed my passion, my intuition, and I knew that I wanted people to see what I see and experience what I experience when I go to Africa every time I go. 
And I really wanted people, that to me is what travel is all about. We can all go on on tours and things and stay in hotels and resorts and things, but that's not digging deep into a, a culture. It's not learning and experiencing a culture or the people that belong in that culture. And that is what my guests take away, all of them, from their tour experience. In episode 48, Vida Fusion's CEO, Davida O'Brien, talks about savoring success. We know that Vita Fusions is a fairly new business. You sort of officially launched the company last year. So tell us, because we know that this is a journey, what does it take to start up a beverage business? Oh, wow. First, an idea, right? The idea of that you want to create a beverage and then get your butt in the kitchen <laughs> and, you know, and start making those things and, and what that looks like. For me, it was just that I loved creating drinks and things like that when I bartend for people. And it's like, I don't know what I want, but I want this. And you try to create something based on their mood and, and what their favorites were. And so I was like, you know what? Why not? And that's what I did. I didn't want to mimic as a cocktail. I didn't want to provide any function to you because I think of myself and Vita is life. And so you have all of that in you already that you could just bring out and I didn't, you didn't need all of that alterations <laughs> and stuff going on. I just wanted to bring you something different, fusing different flavors together, having a burst of flavor in your mouth, not showing what it is, closing your eyes and thinking you're in Bermuda. I wanted to be able to, of course, um, put in my tourism and hospitality hat on, which never really comes off. But this is a great way to expand Bermuda's reach and people to find out about it and, and being able to say, oh, wow, I need to go based on how I want to brand my bottle so people can learn more about Bermuda as well and have those conversations about it. Yeah. Let me tell you, when you're an entrepreneur, it's just like, you know how you're a chef? And you sometimes my sister's a chef. And so sometimes I don't want to eat up with her because she take, keeps that chef hat on every time, right? And so for me, everywhere I go, I see opportunity. I see opportunity where people who don't want to drink are not being part of the conversation. You go through the airport and there's just total bars and I just have a glimpse of the menu and I'm like, hmm, interesting. Or I see these specific type of bars and I'm like, hmm, interesting. So I have plotted on everything where I was just like, yep, we're going to pop up here. We're going to pop there and here and everywhere. But because it's just so funny until you, you, you're in it, you're not even consciously thinking about it. So there's so much opportunity, not only still that I see gaps within the states who have um, took this movement to another level, but obviously I see it so much here in Bermuda that I can be able to create things and do things here in my home. So I'm happy and excited about that too. In episode 49, executive coach Judy Wilkins-Smith on your money DNA. Money is the root of all evil right? Get passed down generation to generation. So when people say that, I'm like, no, love of money is not the root of all evil. Lust of money, possibly. Love of money, no. It simply means you're being a wise steward. You are looking at money and you're bringing it in as part of your life instead of ignoring it and using the poor stuff whenever you need it, but otherwise it gets rejected. It's like what you're saying, it's the opposite of inheriting generational wealth. 
like people like to talk about, you're inheriting generational trauma. How do we clear the trauma? We need to get help. And I think what you're saying is the awareness, right? Like that's the first key step to making the changes. Absolutely. So your first key step is exactly that. You want to understand and acknowledge what is exactly the way that it is without wishing for it to be different. You know what? I'm terrified of money. Or you know what? I'm always broke. Or you know what? It always comes and goes. It's when you acknowledge it that you can start to look at it. And when you look at it, you can start to shift it. Now, that also happens with people who have a lot of money. They will often say to me, this is a great responsibility and a burden. And I'm like, and where'd that come from? Because actually, it's a great opportunity. And you're the the genie with the lamp. And you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do with this lamp. It's such a burden. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) And I hear that often. Money doesn't buy happiness. No, but it can sure do a lot of interesting things that can bring happiness. You're the only one who creates it but it can bring you really interesting opportunities. So uh, what do you suggest to people who want to do this? Maybe just to self-reflect and say, where am I? You've you've touched on it by saying, you know, know where you're at. Do you have a little exercise or a couple of pointers that people could do while they're sitting at home after they listen to this episode? Yes. What you want to do is you want to sit, uh, sit down and write down all of your thoughts, feelings, and actions around money. Everything that you think about money, everything that you feel about money, and everything that you do or don't do around money. And once you've got that piece, what you want to do is ask yourself, so when did I first become aware of money? What was happening in my life at the time? What did I make it mean about me? And what did I make it mean about others? And who else in the family has a similar money pattern? Who struggles with money? Who fears money? Who is burdened by money? Who else in the family? Because the minute you tell me, oh, my aunt did or or does or my uncle or my grandfather, now I know we're dealing with a multi-generational pattern and it's going, I'm tired. Can somebody shift me, please? This is boring. Episode 50, The Resilience Coach, Russell Harvey, shares how to spring forward with learning. So, Russell... You specialize in resilience, and Mm. we are certainly in a world of uncertainty, ambiguity. The question is, what is resilience? What does it mean to you? What it means to me, it means everything. So that's one answer to the question. It's literally, it's about the human condition, and it it means everything. Because if we aren't resilient, then what are we? Or if we don't build and grow resilience, what do we do? And as well, the meaning of resilience to me is also about springing forward with learning i always talk about springing forward with learning just from my years of experience around resilience resilience is springing forward with learning now to do that from all of life's events you need to be able to pause and reflect which is where the learning is and re-energize and recuperate so if you imagine that you do something that you love doing you're tired it's a nice tired but how do you re-energize from a nice tired? But then you do something that actually is really difficult, really challenging, really struggles with. You're a different version of tired. You're a little bit broken. So how do you re-energize from that really difficult, horrible tired? And there'll be different things that you do. So 
deciding to make the choice of buying into springing forward with learning. So you pause, you re-energize and reflect. My question for everybody is, how would your life be better when you choose to do that? So if everybody's listening now, it's like, what will you have more of? If you choose to do more springing forward with learning, learning about resilience, where you weren't resilient, what worked for you, what didn't work for you, how would your life be better? What would you have more of that you would like to have? So it means everything to me because I'm the resilience coach. And I also like people to think about spring forward with learning. That's where I come from around the whole resilience piece. That sometimes I've noticed that people believe that they are being resilient when they're coping and surviving. I would like people to start to think more about that isn't really resilience. That is keeping going regardless. And it's really difficult in those moments to do the pause and do the step back and go, actually, I am just I'm batting my head against a brick wall here whilst I believe I'm being resilient. And myself and many others are going, that's not really the resilience that we want people to be thinking about. We want to understand actually being in the top right is where the true resilience piece is. And there's a significant amount of research that how you get as well into Thrive is around the lovely word of adaptability, openness to change, one of the key components of being resilient. But there's research that shows that actually those people that are in Thrive, uh, they spend a third of their time working upon their openness to change. So we're in the space of actually, everybody's listening now, how much of your time do you actually spend working upon about the idea of doing something new? The idea of challenging yourself, the idea of facing into something that you don't like or you don't enjoy or you're not sure about, but you're going to try it out, trial and error, essentially. So, yes, the adaptability. In episode 51, Maureen Falvey of Strong Leadership Coaching talks to us about taking action. We've all heard the expression, and I've even said it, easier said than done. Well, Maureen doesn't buy that. She believes do the thing and you will have the power. Maureen, let's just jump right into this easier said than done thing. I'm famous for saying that. So tell us why you're not having any of that. What I'm interested in is making stuff happen and getting off of our excuses and moving into action, not letting fear be the guide. I just don't know that we need to spend 20 years talking about something. I think that we try stuff and be willing to fail and we practice being courageous and cultivating confidence. But if we wait until we're ready, I don't know what that means. I think it's too long. I think it's too late. So I just started thinking about that. I'm like, is it easier said than done? I think it's easier done than said. That was a quote. Who did I steal that from? Thomas Edison? Who, oh, no, no. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, do the thing and you'll have the power. And so I was like, oh, yes, someone else feels the same way I do. But let's just start doing things um, and let's move into action instead of conversation. So it starts with a commitment to ourselves. I think people have success when they say out loud to someone else what they want, what they're doing, because in doing so, we hold ourselves accountable. If I keep it to myself, I'm not really committed to anything. You can't do it until then, right? But now we're starting to talk about possibility and empowerment and what I can decide. I'm not waiting for someone to save me or come start my business. If not me, who? So that's the first magical moment that is so exciting to see. If any of you out there, if you have this spark that says you have something you want to give, a business you want to start, you want to get something off the ground, can you trust that? It's a voice you have that someone else doesn't. 
can you trust that, right? That may be your gift. And if you say fear is in the way, or I'm not good enough, or it's not perfect yet, someone doesn't get what you have to offer. And that's a bummer. That is a massive bummer. That's the mindset I like. When you switch from all about me and I've got to build this thing and I've got to create this thing and I need to do this to other people need this thing and I've got to get it to them because I know that it's going to help be helpful in some way. You switch from into a service mindset, it makes everything easier. Mm-hmm. And then it, you you want to take the action because you realize that it's for other people. You get out of your own way a little bit. Episode 52, Shanali Rajaratnam, the founder of Power of Women Conference, shares what personal responsibility is in her world. Change is really hard. Like real change is really hard. It's like always pushing that boulder up a hill because people don't like to change. Even if they say they're open-minded and they have broad perspectives, generally people don't change and we inherently have biases and you know things from childhood that stay with us and make it very difficult for people to be as open-minded as they even want to be, right? So how do you create change? How do you make real change, real impact? I don't think we can ever change the world or anybody. But what we can do is change ourselves and inspire another person to change for themselves, because I think that's so important to remember. And I had to learn it early on. You can never change someone. If I take accountability for myself, I think that's the first step. And if every single person takes accountability for just themselves, don't try to go change another person, your mother, father, your friends, the society, the world, just take accountability for yourself. I think that's if everybody did it, that's collectively changing the world. That's literally how you change the world by just taking accountability for yourself and showing up. So how do you keep going? Like, how do you stay resilient? You personally and then generally, what do you think? I'll tell you two things. I'm very fortunate because I have a good foundation. I have a good group of people around me from my mom, dad, my brother, my best friend, who are my biggest supporters. So from early on, I realized having that circle, that grounding circle, that's your that's your tribe is so important because the world is already harsh. People are going to say, you can't do it. Oh, you're going to fail at it. I have been, I mean, I never listened to these things, by the way. One of my things is, I guess I'm very stubborn when it comes to, when it comes to taking this path. Uh, when somebody says you can't, I'm like, you wait and watch. I'm going to do it. Now it give, gave me more feel to go make it happen. And, and that's just my personality. I just don't like to hear no or impossible. The word impossible says I'm possible. There's nothing impossible. The truth is, if you have a heart, if you put your heart and your mind into it and you really take action, at least you will get close to that that destination you're headed towards. And and in my yearbook, my quote was, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you will land among the stars. So that's, that's just my way of uh, seeing the world. In episode 53, transformation specialist, Dr. Drayvon James, talks to us about imagination and passion in business. And somewhere within yourself, you find this resilience and it feels like a good day. And then you have really, really hard days. And uh, But in my mind, in my imagination, for years that was bred into me is that it starts with an idea. It starts with an idea, or maybe it starts with a feeling that develops into an idea. I added the feeling part when I got older. I realized that it really started with a feeling that 
that I put into my mind. But my mom's thing was it starts with an idea. You start thinking about it and you start imagining it and you create all the emotions around it. So for me, I think I had already built this world. I really had. I'd already built it inside. I'm a person who could, you know, daydream for hours. I think when you don't have a lot of other things, material things, your imagination does become your 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 entertainment. So for me, walking into this world physically, sometimes I look around me, I say, Yeah, I remember when I when I when I used to imagine this, when I used to think about this. So it seems quite placed properly for me. So I think I had a huge advantage, you know, because I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth and I can maybe not even a plastic spoon, right? But I had this rich um, imagination given to me or, to, or she told me how to tap into it. So I've always gone to that place and built the world before I walked into it. So it became a part of my fiber. And and let me just say this. It doesn't mean that I didn't have times when I thought to myself, this is way too hard. There's nothing in my physical journey that's supporting this. But never really did it occur to me that I would quit on the things that I was passionate about. And I think that was big for me is understanding what things, which I told you I, I I added later that it starts with a feeling and then it goes to the mind because my mind was, I was great at math and science. So I could think and think and think, but I realized that the things that I really was passionate about, I was going to go through it. Maybe if I had just thought of something, oh, this is a great way to make, make money, <laughs> but I wasn't passionate about it. And I had to really sit as I got older and more mature and say, okay, these are the things that I'm passionate about. And these are the things that I'm going to stick with. Even if my mind can conceive the other stuff, this is where it is for me. This is my passion. This is what lights me up. And so those things I found that um, having that resiliency and, and that perseverance, right, really paid off when I really followed my passion. Episode 54, Kager CEO, LaShawn Smith, um, building values-based businesses. I want to say I like how important values are to you, clearly. And I yes. did note on your on your website, um, it's cagr.com, that you go on there. And one of the things I saw was a whole values page. You have a page that describe your values for the business. And we are marketing people. So we work with people to build websites. And that is something we always recommend. And people are always a little surprised. Like, oh, like why? I got to put my services. I got my about us page. You know, that's important. We we really recommend that values be really important too. In fact, when Vicky and I built our website for two for one, the first page we built was our values page. It I was the it. most important thing to us. I believe as we continue to move forward, if you do not have a business rooted in values that, and here's the, the punchline, that you're willing to go out of business to protect, you are going to have a really hard time acquiring and retaining customers. Because increasingly, you know, whether someone may say it's a purpose-driven business or it's just a great kind of branded business, most people aren't going to say Nike is a purpose-driven business, but the promise is very clear. The values are very clear. They are largely trying to make everyone, the everyday person, feel like an athlete. Um, and and I'm, I'm paraphrasing their words, but it's very clear the journey and the mission that they're on. And trust is is easy to lose, but I believe that if you don't truly lean and start there, you can easily get distracted with so many things. And I, working in early stage software products in small companies, big companies, 
I, I naturally found myself in meetings with brand consultants and folks who were kind of developing identities. And I was like, oh, goodness, this is so critical to the rest of the decision making. If you don't figure out what you stand for, and I'm not just saying like culture posters that you put in the hallway at your office, but like what you deeply stand for, everything else is harder. The website is harder. The product is harder. Your go-to-market is harder. Your comfort, like everything is just harder. And so it's like, why not invest the appropriate time and money up front? So it's almost like the teenage years, you got to figure out who you are, your identity and everything else, I just think uh, becomes a much easier decision process once you have that articulated. But are you really going to change your behavior? And I heard this great definition of learning. Someone says, you don't learn something or you have not learned something until you change your behavior. So like filling up your head with knowledge so you can go on Jeopardy, like, okay, maybe fine. But like you really haven't learned something until you start acting differently. In episode 55, author Dr. Raina Salman explains why sales is not what you think. What would you say are the top three things a person must do or must know? to be successful in that hustle game of selling? Yeah, I think understanding your customers, like your buyer persona, who are you selling to? And what problems are you trying to solve? And staying laser focused. When you're an entrepreneur and what I've learned, and I was raised with entrepreneurs that had restaurants and car dealerships. And uh, if you're an immigrant, you always have these family members that have. So I learned also about selling and about understanding your buyers. Know who you're targeting. Know what their business, pro what business problems are you trying to solve. Speak their language. Stay laser focused on helping them. And when you land and your first customer, delight them, make sure that you're taking care of them, make sure that you deliver and over deliver on your promise. Because what you need is this one customer that then they can refer you to others in their network. And then you start growing and growing and doing the right thing. People want to work with people that are honest. People want to work with people that are also that will say, hey, you may not need this, but you may consider this. Another thing, Vicky and Laura, that I would tell entrepreneurs is qualify out quickly. If you recognize this is not the right customer for you, uh, hope is not a strategy. So getting to know your customer is something that we all know needs to be done. What tips do you have for our listeners to really understand that? I mean, is it going out there and networking with people who could be potential clients and asking them what they need. At the end of the day, what you want to do, you want to be relevant to the human in front of you. No one wants to talk to a person that all they talk about is how great their product is and have a slide filled with great logos. The customer, the buyer is thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, and so doing that research, doing that upfront background preparation helps you in standing out from the crowd. And we all know that we need to do that, but it is one of the things that's not being done uh, because people try to cut corners. Trust the process. The sales process starts with that planning and with that preparation. And we got to make sure that we are doing that to differentiate ourselves. Yeah, and I think it's the humanity of it is exactly it, right? Rel it's building relationships. It's, it's respect of your client. Yeah. Right. And oh, you're so right, Laura. Respect, right? And this is what I, I want to tell your listeners. It's a gift to land an appointment with a buyer, with a prospect, even if they end up not buying from you. 
they are taking that time with you. Time is finite, right? That is the only thing I can't get back. And when I have an executive saying, yes, out of all of the salespeople that have reached out to me right now, I want to meet with you. That is a gift that we need to make sure that it is that we are not taking it for granted. And the way we show up matters. And when you talk about respect, that includes first impression matters. That includes, do you have an agenda? Do you have, what about your artificial communication? The way you show up, your attire, are you sending the message that is saying, I am here to help you. I have taken a time to address in a professional manner to show you that I am here to help you. Another thing is your attitude, right? People want to buy from people that have positive attitude. There's research around how attitude impacts our performance, but it also impacts other people's performance. It's contagious. So how are you showing up through these Zoom calls with a problem-solving mindset and helping your buyers and respecting their time and adding value? And that's a wrap for today's episode of Resilient Entrepreneurs. We hope you enjoyed hearing from our amazing guest and learned something new about resilience and entrepreneurship. Remember, resilience isn't just a trait. It's a skill that can be learned and developed. And if you want to stay connected with us and hear more inspiring stories, be sure to hit that subscribe button and follow us on social media. And if you know somebody who's a resilient entrepreneur and would be a great guest on our show, we want to hear from you please reach out. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode of Resilient Entrepreneurs.